You know, among my kids in our house, in the Ann Leitner house, we've got, a, uh, we've got kind of a favorite comic strip. Um, it's a web series that was actually turned into a book, and it's called Strange Planet. Maybe some of you have seen this comic strip before. The cartoonist is named Nathan Pyle. And they're these funny little comic strips that are focused on these aliens that have come to Earth. And they are trying to figure out, not just Earth, it probably seems like they've come to America, and they're trying to figure out like American culture and customs. They've learned English, but uh, they speak in this very hyper-literal way, and I guess that's maybe just normal for alien culture. Um, but with the big football, going, football game going on today, um, we don't have much to root for as Vikings fans, but I thought I'd give you a couple comic strips that might be relevant to tonight's football game. So here's the first one. The, the beings uh, ordering a pizza. Maybe some of you might order a pizza tonight. Hello, we do not want to make sustenance. We will literally pay a being to come here with sustenance. Please pile various edible items onto a vast dough circle. Excess fungus slices, please, right? Okay, gratitude. We will stay here and do nothing. The next one, the alien beings are announcing the football game, and there's even an alien being as an official. Um, you can use some of these tonight in your Super Bowl parties and just tell people you learned it at church today, but they drop back to propel, but they are merely run instead. Progress, convincing deception. Wait, there is a cloth, you know, like a flag on the play, right? Cloth on the sequence, so you guys can use that one tonight. It may be invalid. Number 35, use superfluous violence. <laughs> Shoving after shove time was over. <laughs> the progress is invalid, they will regress. You gotta regulate your shoves. We all do, really, don't we? The beings in the Strange Planet comics uh, have spent their entire lives in their alien culture and customs. And so when they come to America, trying to live in America, they are learning about not only our ways of speaking, but they're learning about the things that we value. Uh, and so that's really difficult to do. Maybe some of you that are immigrants here, maybe you're first generation or second generation immigrant to the US, you're like, strange language, strange customs, strange culture. During this sermon series, we've been looking at uh, the book of 2 Corinthians, and Christians in Corinth are in some ways like these aliens that have been transported into a brand new culture. Corinthian culture, which is very Greek, we could say Hellenistic, had its own set of guiding stories, it had its own set of values and morals about what the good life looks like. But these new followers of the way of Jesus in Corinth are being initiated into a brand new kind of culture, the culture of the kingdom of God. And they're struggling, though, with how to live in this kingdom culture while still being situated within Corinthian culture. So you've got this Corinthian macro culture, and they're just this little tiny subculture, and they're struggling with it. We see this um, in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, which we've been going through the book of 2nd Corinthians. Today we are in 2nd Corinthians chapter 3, so if you want to open up your pew Bibles, um, if you want to get out your app, uh, you can do that as well. I'll also have most of these passages on the screen for you this morning if you don't want to get potentially distracted by your phone. That's probably a good idea too. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we're going to be zeroing in on verse 7 through 18. Last week, we saw how the church community at Corinth had begun to doubt whether or not the message that Paul was carrying 
about Jesus was true. Now, not too dissimilar from those of you that live here in Minneapolis, the people, the Christians living in Corinth were living in a cosmopolitan city that had some pretty sharp differences in values. Corinthian culture had this broader reputation as having this sort of like Las Vegas style nightlife. Um, Infamous brothels abounded and this sort of activity that would happen in the city of Corinth, it wasn't just for like kind of raucous bachelor parties and stuff like you might picture in Las Vegas. Corinthian culture, all of this like sexual promiscuity and different values was very much tied up in their worship of pagan gods. So the church at Corinth is this tiny little subculture existing in the broader Corinthian culture, and they are constantly barraged with different messages about what's true, good, and beautiful. So for example, you can see up on the screen here, Corinthian culture valued something called hedonism. Now that's a word we kind of maybe colloquially use in common vernacular, but hedonism was when people were thinking about, well, what is the the best way to live? What's the best way to live in the world? One school of thought was maximize pleasure, because that's all we got. So Corinthian culture placed a high value on hedonism. They were pursuing pleasure and sensual self-indulgence above all else. And if you lived in Corinth, it would have been impossible to not see this message all around you all the time. I mean, you're barraged and blitzed by it. And we can kind of understand that a little bit, right? Living here in Minneapolis living in American culture, you know, we can feel a decent amount of dissonance between what we might see as like the values of Jesus, the values of the kingdom of God, and what we see are like cultural values here in our own city or in broader American culture. And we can probably relate a bit with the church at Corinth and them struggling with the larger value of hedonism, because that's a value that we see in American culture and the culture right here in our own city. How big of a problem, though, was hedonism on the Christians living in Corinth? Well, there's a couple instances we see in both of Paul's letters which give us a pretty good clue that hedonism was creeping into the church culture at Corinth. Um, And some of these, it's like really hard for us to wrap our minds around, but we can see how the hedonism of the culture was shaping people in ways that were antithetical to the way of Jesus. So we know of at least one instance that Paul addresses where he tells this guy, this is a real situation happening in the church at Corinth, so anything that might be going on in your small group probably doesn't compare to this, all right? There was one guy who, um, how do I put this, you know, PG-13 maybe? Um, let's just say there was one guy at the church in Corinth that was getting it on with his stepmom. And here's the deal. Paul actually had to address this. He was like, uh, guys, I don't know if you're aware of this or not. Not cool. You know, <laughs> this is not something that's all right to do. This is not in keeping with the way of Jesus. And they're like, oh, really? <laughs> we had no idea. So he's got to address that. Um, in another instance, this is a real thing happening at the church in Corinth. He, Paul has to tell the church in Corinth, guys, you can't get drunk on the communion wine. They're like, what? Really? So in the early church, the practice of communion was more like a potluck. And so they would get together for worship, and then they'd have this huge potluck meal. Well, the day wage workers, so people on the lower ends of the socioeconomic ladder at the church in Corinth, They were stuck working in the mornings, and they couldn't get there till later in the day. And so some in the church community who had a little bit 
they were a little bit more well-to-do. They didn't have to work in the morning. They're showing up to church on time. They're having second, thirds, and fourths of the potluck meal, maybe two, three, four glasses of wine. And this is really bad, right? We look at that and go, that's crazy. But the church at Corinth wasn't able to recognize that. Because they were so submerged in the hedonistic culture that they weren't, be, weren't able to see the difference without Paul addressing it. So some people, though, are seeing this hedonism problem that's going on at the church in Corinth. And they're going, you know, this stuff that this Paul guy is saying about liberty in Christ and freedom in the Spirit, it's not working out too good for us. So what we need to do is we need to have the pendulum swing in the other direction. We need a strict and comprehensive code of right and wrongs to combat this hedonism. I know Paul's been talking about freedom in Christ. It's not working. So what we need to do is we need to have a hardcore commitment to the law of Moses, and we need everyone here to follow it to the T. And maybe if we do that, maybe we can stave off being assimilated by the Corinthian culture. I think we can kind of relate to these tensions, right? So with this context in mind, let's take a look at how Paul addresses this in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7 through 18. You can follow along with me here, either in your Bibles, I have it up on the screen as well. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such a glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation... The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed in the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes... Uh, for this comes from the Lord, who is spirit. Now, the opening section of this passage can be a bit confusing for people, unless you know Israel's story from the Hebrew Bible. Paul here is referring to a scene from Exodus 34, where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, and he receives the law. And he comes back down from Mount Sinai, and this like weird thing is happening with his face. The scriptures say his like, face was radiant with glory. And it wasn't just a sunburn sort of deal. You know, there was something mystical about it. And it was so mystical and perplexing that uh, Aaron and the other leaders of Israel don't even want to get near Moses. They're like, dude, what's going on with your face? You know? <laughs> it's really strange to them. He's like, no, 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 it's good, it's good. Come here, guys. I have to tell you about what God's told me. Here's the law. And they're like kind of reluctant. And finally, he gets them to come in, and he tells them the law. And afterwards, they're still so unsettled by this radiant glory that's on Moses' face that Moses takes a veil, and he's like, all right, guys, if it's really bothering you, I'll cover it up. And he takes a veil and covers up his face. Now, I want to make it clear that when Moses receives the law, it has a prescription and principle 
for how to act in almost every situation an ancient Hebrew person could think of. And there's some confusion about this. When Paul talks about the law in a negative way like we see him doing here, Paul is not saying that the law was bad. In fact, it was necessary. Think about this. Israel had been in slavery. The Hebrew people had been in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. And then they get set out into the wilderness. They don't have any idea how to live. They don't know what's right from what's wrong. They've had their entire culture stolen from them. So they don't have any idea how to live as a people, as a nation. So God has to spell it out for them, like line by line. And this is actually really, really good that God does this. For Paul, there's this pretty spectacular claim, though, that what God has given to followers of Jesus in this new covenant in the Holy Spirit is even more glorious than what God gave Moses. Why is it more glorious? Well, first of all, we need to understand that the law was remedial or developmental, meaning that it was a necessary part of Israel's development, but it was given with the intention of giving Israel and eventually all of humanity a destination that's further along in God's intended developmental path. Let's look back again at what Paul Paul writes in verses 11 through 12. Indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of what? Because of the glory that surpasses it. For For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. One of the many ventures I I do outside of the church is I I coach youth basketball. I have two different teams. I have an eight and nine-year-old team that my youngest son, Ryder, plays on. And I have a 14-year-old, like really high-level, top-tier AAU team that my older son, Justice, plays on. They're 14 years old. Now, when I'm coaching my eight and nine-year-olds, like I just had a game with them yesterday, these practices are like, I have to spell out for them. They're just learning. Like, this is a travel This is a double dribble. This is out of bounds. This is how you shoot a layup. They have to be told every single little detail about how they should play the game. And it's actually really good that I do that for them. But I'm doing that for them, not so that they would stay at that place forever. I have a better, we could say more glorious destination in mind for them. And if you watched our game yesterday, if you came to our game yesterday, you would know this is not very glorious basketball. (laughs) These eight and nine-year-olds are playing. I have a much better plan for them down the road, but they have to learn this stuff. In the same way, like my son's 14-year-old team, they've still got a ways to go, but they are like light years beyond where these eight and nine-year-olds are. And if I was to take Justice and his teammates and make them come to a practice with my eight and nine-year-olds, and be like, hey, this is how you're going to have to practice, and this is what the games are going to be like, they would see it as a far less glory, far worse glory than what they are experiencing right now at 14 years old. But the goal is to develop them to a place beyond that. Paul is not saying that the law given by God to Moses was bad. But if some of the Corinthian Christians think that the solution to the hedonism problem is to go and be like, hey, what we need to do is we need to go back and like took every single line item of this law that, by the way, was written 1,300 years before the Corinthian church, 
to Hebrew people in an ancient Near Eastern culture that's very different than what the Corinthians are living in, if they think that's the solution, Paul's like, you're horribly mistaken. This isn't what you're looking for. The hedonism of Corinthian culture is a problem, and it shouldn't be part of the kingdom culture of the Christians in Corinth, but the solution isn't going to be a legalistic commitment to the law of Moses. Here's why it won't work, and here's why God had something better in mind. The law sought to give a rule for nearly every possible situation an ancient Israelite might encounter in the ancient Near East, but God's people weren't always going to be ancient Hebrew people living in the ancient Near East. Culture is constantly changing, and there's no possible way to have a permanent set of rules that would tell you what to do in each and every circumstance and situation for all of human history. Can you imagine trying to make that book, right? That would be impossible. The book is always changing because culture is changing, and it adapts, and it we go, we're not dressed the same way that people were 2,000 years ago. And the people 2,000 years ago in Corinth didn't dress the same way that the Hebrew people did 1,300 years before them. They didn't talk the same. It's totally different. Imagine having to create an ever-expanding rule book. It just doesn't work. So, like, for example, in the law, you had a law about whether or not it was permissible to cut down fruit-bearing trees during siege warfare. How many of you had need to consult that law anytime? <laughs> right? <laughs> so maybe some of you have been involved in siege warfare, I don't know, but um, it's not relevant. It just isn't. It's not irrelevant. Now it was to them. It was good that they had that law. I'd prefer to have like a law for me about why, when I'm trying to zipper merge on 35W, why Minnesotans who do this weird thing that doesn't happen, I don't think, in any other state, they do this really long line. Have you noticed this if you've lived in other states? Nobody zipper merges here. And they sit in this long line. I need a law for like when that one truck, there's always one guy and you're trying to zipper merge and they kind of like stick their truck out to the side and they're like, nope, you're not going to do it. I need a law for whether or not it's permissible for me to just Maybe kind of swear under my breath. Is that okay? No, it's definitely not. That would be more relevant for me than siege warfare. I don't live in that time. Or how about this as another example? You got this rule in the law about making sure you have four tassels on the end of your cloak and that each of these tassels have a blue cord. You're living in Corinth in the first century. You don't own a cloak that's that style. You come from Greek culture. You just followed the way of Jesus because you're like, man, this is good news. I want to follow Jesus. But you're like, I don't have a cloak. And some people in the church are like, you're going to need a cloak, buddy. And guess what? When you go to that cloak store, you know, maybe they can cut you a deal on circumcision too. No pun intended, but they're really serious about you're going to have to follow the law to the T. And Paul is like, oh my goodness, guys, this is not it either. Yes, hedonistic Corinthian culture is bad. We don't want that creeping into our church. But the solution isn't legalism. This is not why Jesus came. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So instead of an ever-expanding list of rules for what's morally permissible or not, God's greater goal was the transformation of our character. Sometimes the biblical language might dub it as something like getting a new heart, a new nature. 
Paul is telling the church in Corinth that the good news is that God is out to transform our character into the virtuous character of Christ through the power of the Spirit. And here's the thing. People of virtuous character don't need a comprehensive list of rules to deter them from sin. And they don't rely on fear of punishment for motivation. They just don't. I don't know about you guys. I have never had to have someone tell me in my life, you know, Paul, it's against the law to punch a baby. I'm sure it is. I have never once looked at a baby and gone, man, I think I can take him in a fight. <laughs> never once. Never once entered my mind. It, I don't run off a of fear of punishment. I don't see a baby and go, boy, if I punched a baby, I might get punished. Why? It's not in my character. And it's probably not in your character either. So you don't need a rule for it because your character doesn't even allow you to desire that. What if we woke up tomorrow morning and all across the U.S. and here in Minnesota, heroin was legalized? Now, if that happened, I don't know about you, maybe some would be tempted. I, I'm not going out tomorrow to buy heroin. Why? It's not in my character. So do you see, once your character is at a certain point, character is about your appetites and your desires. You don't need a rule for things that aren't in your appetite or your desires. And this gets us to think a little bit about how Paul might be addressing some things that were relevant in the Greco-Roman world that he's speaking to. Because the Greco-Roman world had this long, rich history of wrestling with, well, how should one live in the world? We call this discipline ethics. And arguably the most important ethicist in all of Greek culture was a guy named Aristotle. Some Greek philosophers, like the hedonists, believed that one ought to pursue pleasure above all else. But not Aristotle. Aristotle believed that everything was made by God. Now, was he referring to the Judeo-Christian God? Probably not, definitely not. But he considered this unmoved mover, that there was one God who made it all. And behind it all, he designed creation and everything in creation with a specific goal and function. The Greek word is telos. So the goal of life for Aristotle, and this is important because this is kind of like the cultural sea that Paul's swimming in with his Corinthian audience. The goal of life was to act in accordance with your design, with your telos. To do that would be to live virtuously. So for Aristotle, virtues weren't like a list of rules. Virtues were more like adjectives that describe what a person of virtuous character does in any given situation. So here's one example. For, for Aristotle, if you were faced with a situation that could bring about fear, Aristotle believed like a virtuous person would not respond in a moment of fear with either on one ditch cowardice or on the other ditch acting rashly, but instead they would be brave. See, that's a virtue. It's, a, it's an adjective that describes the person's character. But all of these Debates about virtue ethics brought up some good questions. Like, okay, what if when I'm faced with a situation that brings about fear, what if I am cowardly? Like, what if it's not in my nature to be brave? Or what if, if heroin became legalized tomorrow, what if I actually would become tempted to be an addict? Is there any way my character can change? 
if there isn't, we're in trouble, right? And I think all of civilization runs off the premise that our character can change. Otherwise, we wouldn't lock up serial killers because we'd just be like, well, that was just their character. They had to be a serial killer. So for Aristotle, the way that your character could change, and this is what the virtue eth ethicists were teaching, was your character could change by becoming, uh, by spending time in the company of a virtuous person, a person of high character. Aristotle and other virtue ethicists called this a moral exemplar. By being in the company of a moral exemplar, by following how they live and then habitually practicing what they practice, your character could be changed to be like them. Now, why am I bringing this up? Am I saying that Paul was teaching the church at Corinth, Aristotle, and virtue ethics? No, I think Paul's teaching them something much better. Now, do I think that Paul like, was unaware of Aristotle? Probably not. Paul was really educated. We see at least several points where Paul explicitly engages with Greek audiences in Greek philosophy, most famously, maybe Mars Hill in the book of Acts, where he engages with the Athenian philosophers. So I think we've got good reason to believe Paul's like aware of Aristotle, but Paul's teaching something better than this. It's better news. Paul's got better news than virtue ethics. He's got better news than hedonism, and he's got better news than legalism. What if you could be in the company of the ultimate moral exemplar? What if you could be intimately acquainted with the only person of perfect, virtuous character? And what if you could be united to him in such a way that your character and nature would be transformed into his image and likeness? If such a thing were possible, a comprehensive list of do's and don'ts for every possible situation would be irrelevant to you. And here's Paul's radical good news. This is possible. But how? The incarnate Son of God takes on human nature, defeats sin and death, and ascends to heaven where he's enthroned in power. So the very material flesh and blood Jesus that walked the streets of Galilee, we don't necessarily have the same access to him that his disciples had when they were walking the streets of Galilee with him. But what do we have? And this is key to Paul's theology. We have the Holy Spirit we have the spirit that unites us to Christ. And the spirit gives us perpetual access to Jesus. So Christ is enthroned in the right hand of power in the heavens. And he's not here in flesh and blood. He's enthroned in flesh and blood, but God gives us his spirit. And so we're united to him through his spirit. Look again here at verse 16 through 18. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul says we can behold the glory of the Lord. And what's the result of it? Transformation into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. So like, the virtue ethicist had something right. The question of your character is a question of your inner disposition. Because what is inside of you is what eventually comes out of you. Jesus taught this as well. Bad trees bear bad fruit. Good trees bear good fruit. What sorts of fruits or virtues 
should we expect from a person whose character is being transformed into the image of Christ? Well, Paul gives us a list in another letter, writing to the church of Galatia. Here's a good list to get us started. Galatians 5, 22 to 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. The end goal for our character and nature, church, is to be completely transformed into the image of Christ. In that final consummation of heaven and earth, when God's story reaches its completion, that development that we have still yet to reach, there's going to be things in our character that God is constantly transforming all of our days. But when we see him face to face, we're going to be transformed into the perfect moral character of Christ. And have you ever thought for a moment how that final kingdom, how will in the kingdom of heaven, will there be no sin? Will we lose our free will? Will God just make us into robots? No, this is how this all works. We won't have any desire to sin. So will we be still totally free? Yes, but we'll be only totally free to choose the good because our character will have been so transformed. We won't desire any sin at all. And we'll get to that day where any sin from the tiniest little thing we might look at to the biggest sin will be as much of a temptation as it is for me to be tempted to get into a cage fight with a baby. It's just not there. That's what we have to look forward to. So how can we experience such a powerful transformation and change of our inner world, a change of our character that can not only withstand the sheer force of our culture, which there's a lot of good things that God's doing in our culture, but there's a lot of points of dissonance. How can we withstand when we live in this culture that has all these different values and not just withstand it? How can we actually be empowered to be agents of change that might even possibly affect our culture to transform it in a positive direction? I wanna give you real quick here today just three strategies, and these aren't rules. These are just strategies, and I say strategies and not rules for a reason because I'm not giving you the law. These are, these are things that I think are, are biblical, historic Christian emphases to help you follow Christ in a way that's going to change your, your character. And preachers like to do this weird stuff. I don't know why we do this. Each of these start with the letter P. There you go. So we have three Ps here. I don't know. Preachers like to do that sort of weird stuff. All right, so number one, here's your first strategy. The first P, people. Be connected in meaningful community to those of Christ-like character. In Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, he tells the church the blueprint. Follow me as I follow Christ. Or as the ESV puts it, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Find some moral exemplars that look like Jesus, that bear the fruits of the Spirit, and hang out with them. Spend time with them. And I want to be clear, because Pastor Jay talked about this last week, there's a difference between people like having a lot of like Bible trivia knowledge or just being really charismatic and people that actually have Christ-like virtues and character in their life. Those two things aren't necessarily the same. So I'm not saying hang out with the Bible trivia master. If they have that and they also bear the fruits of the Spirit in their life, great. Spend time with them. Get together with them in community. Here's the second P. Participation. 
There's a difference between giving cognitive assent to propositions about Christ and participating with Christ. So anybody that's like seen my wife on the streets could say, uh, yeah, she's got brown hair and blue eyes. So they've named a couple propositions about her, true propositions. But my knowledge of my wife, my knowledge of Carrie, couldn't possibly be reduced to a list of propositions. You can't do that for your spouse, right? You couldn't just say, well, here's the list. No, there's a deeper knowledge, a participatory knowledge that comes from us having shared in life together. And so in the life of the church, we have these practices that bring us into more participation with Christ. Things like worship. You can't duplicate what we just did singing together on your own, by yourself. I mean, it's, you can sing at home and worship God on your own, but doing it together in church context, there's something different about that. Prayer is another practice, right? Communion, the Lord's table. Even Jesus brings this one up. We don't think about this one a lot. Serving those in need. If you've done to the least of these, you've done it to me. Those are ways that we have participation with Christ. The third P, practice. The key ingredient in the transformation of our character is regular, habitual practice. Remember how I said your inner world would eventually, the world of your character would come spilling out? Well, through following the Spirit and the way of Jesus, we can actually kind of like reverse engineer that process. We can hack the inner world of our character through the activity of our outer world, habitually doing what is true, good, and beautiful. And by doing that over and over again, what we find is our appetites change, our desires change. So what I actually want to do here in a moment um, is I I actually want to invite us into a a time for prayer. But I I want to get you thinking about, um, as we do a practice here together, I want you to think about how this might apply to our lives today. And uh, I I don't want you walking away from the sermon going, well, I just need to throw out all the rules. We don't have any household rules. We don't have any, like, rules in our schools. And that's that's not what Paul is suggesting. Um, What I'm suggesting, though, is that legalism is vastly inferior to focusing on Christ-like transformation. I'm a parent of young teenagers, and so we've got rules in our house. Um, You know, being a teenager now is very, very different than when I was a kid. And so things like, do we let our kids use TikTok or not? There's not a rule for that in the Bible. And so I'm navigating that with my wife. Like, is TikTok good or bad for our kids? I don't know. I'm talking to other parents and I'm reading literature about it. Now, we have a rule in our house, and I'm not saying it should be prescriptive for all of you, but we just go, yeah, no, no TikTok for you. All right? Now, that's, that's something that we know at some point when they get out of our house The goal isn't that fear of mom and dad would continually regulate their behavior. That's a poor motivator. Instead, what we'd hope is that they'd be people of character. And this is what we want to have for all of our children and all of us, is that their character be so transformed that when they become adults, beyond the fear of punishment, that they would still will to follow after Christ. So I want to encourage us to be a church community that is a community primarily known as people of Christ-like character, to be Christ-centered and Christ-sent. So now what I want to do is invite you, in your bulletins, there's some space where you can journal. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to take some time to do one of the prayers. Um, If you've ever, if you've picked up, hopefully you have at some point, the Extraordinary Norms booklet. 
And there's a bunch of practices and resources that um, Pastor Jay and I put together and some of our other ministry staff worked on together this past fall to be like, what would it look like for us to be shaped into more Christ-like character? And one of the practices that we mentioned in here in page 11 is a prayer that you would typically do at the end of your day called the examine prayer. It's a historic Christian prayer. And I want to take some time to actually do it now. It's not the end of the day, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to lead you through a time of reflected, guided prayer. And so I'm going to ask you some questions to not just think about, but to actually bring to God and participate with him. And what I'd encourage you to do is either you can journal your prayer responses right now, or if you just want to pray them through quietly in your, your thoughts or whisper them under your breath, you can do that as well. So hopefully you can see the space at the bottom of your bulletin to do that. First of all, I want to invite you to ask God for eyes to see where he is at work. Where has he been at work in, that, in the past 24 hours? God, would you give us eyes to see where you've been at work in our past day? And I'll take a moment to be observant of those areas of your day where you notice looking back, yeah, God was at work. And write those down or to offer them back to him in prayer. Now, as you reflected on those things and you look back, take a moment now to give thanks to God for the gift that that day was, to give thanks to, those, to him for those things, whether there was adversity, whether there was enjoyment. Give thanks to him for the gift of breath in your lungs that you were able to enjoy another day in his creation. Now as you look back on the past day, come face to face with your shortcomings. Maybe the things that have been in your character that continually lead you astray. Maybe as you look back on your day, you see some of those things. And as you reflect, confess to God the ways in the past day in which you might have missed the mark and failed or sinned. Now knowing that God is gracious to forgive our sins, look ahead to this day and maybe even into Monday as you think about many of you starting your work day and ask God to guide you in specific situations that you're already looking at going, I know these might be difficult or I know I may have missed you in these situations before God as I look ahead. Would you give me guidance? 
And ask God in some specific ways to guide you over the next day. Before we sing, I want to encourage you, I don't do this every night, it's not a rule, but this is a practice that I found to be helpful for me, and sometimes I have seasons where I do it nightly or three nights a week, and as you do it at the end of your day and carve out some time, maybe you've even just felt a, a sense of ease or lack of anxiety as you took time to commune with God in prayer like that. As you do these practices and spend time with them, you're going to find your character and your desires start to change. Now I want to invite you to stand and uh, to sing together one more time this morning as an act of participating with Christ.